Just to give you a heads up, this text is thick. And I don't know what to do with it besides let it be thick. So I don't know that you're going to leave the exposition today all chipper. But I also don't know that's what you pay me for. Before I feed you this meal, I need to spread the table. The Word of God is your meat and drink. And before I slap theological meat on your plate and pour gospel drink in your cup, you must first have a plate and a cup to hold it. So before I even touch the text, I want to give you a historical plate and a gospel cup. A biblical cup. First, the historical plate. We need to do some background work in the text. Entering chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar has disappeared without a biblical trace. And that's because God has fast-forwarded the tape for us. There's a chronological gap between chapter 4 and chapter 5 of approximately 30 years. And this fact alone reveals something unique about one of God's books that we call Daniel. This book is not merely a record of the history of God's people in exile in Babylon. In in fact, the author shows relatively little interest in chronology in the historical section of the book. We must look elsewhere if we want to understand the events of world history in the period covered by Daniel. Rather than giving us intricate details of Jewish chronology and even the world history of his time, God in Daniel wants to focus our hearts on how he controls history. And now this helps explain the abrupt way in which Belshazzar appears in chapter 5. Without introduction, without biographical information, without an explanation of his place in the line of kingly succession. Suddenly, King Nebi is gone and King King Belshazzar is sitting on his throne. Now, this particular king, Belshazzar, has long puzzled scholars since his name appears nowhere in secular history in the sequence of Babylonian kings. For decades, college professors, Bible critics, and theological liberals have used this king as exhibit A for why the, why the book of Daniel is historically inaccurate. You see, that was until the 1920s. When archaeologists uncovered Babylonian documents, well, Belshazzar emerged from the shadows as a definite historical figure in the line of kings. And of course, all the liberals apologized and converted to Christianity. No. Now, these discoveries revealed more about the time period in question. Let me break it down for you. You're going to see a list here of, of kings. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, and he died in 562 B.C. He was succeeded by his son, Amel Marduk, which is also the evil Merodach of 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52. This man reigned for two years. He was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Nergal Sherazer, in a, in a palace coup. And I just imagine these family dynamics. Can can't imagine what the family reunions look like. Nergal, the assassin, he reigned for four years. He died and was succeeded by his son, Labisha Marduk. Labisha Marduk was actually a, a child. He only reigned for a few months before he was liquidated. That's a nice way of saying 
he was literally beat to death. He was beat to death by the party that brought Nebuchadnezzar to the throne. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not related to Nebuchadnezzar. So he didn't have a right to the royal line. All of the children had, that had the right to the royal line had been clubbed to death or assassinated. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted some kind of connection to the great king Nebuchadnezzar in the glory days of Babylon. So the best we can tell, he married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And he would reign until the end of the Babylonian kingdom. A secular history records him as the last king of Babylon reigning for 17 years. And something unique about this Nebuchadnezzar is he really didn't like Babylon that much. He didn't want to stay there. In fact, it didn't suit his health, and so he built a palace in Tima, which is an oasis in the North Arabian desert, 500 miles from Babylon. And he spent the next 10 years there. His son, Belshazzar, he placed as co-regent or co-king on the throne in the capital city of Babylon. So Belshazzar functioned, the Belshazzar you see in your text, functioned as the de facto king in Babylon. Babylon, And it was during the Nebuchadnezzar period of reign. So this is how you can, you can put this historically. Now nationally, Babylon is a flower quickly fading. Also at this time, Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, he was eating up the world. The, the Medo-Persian armies were just crawling across the countryside. They were everywhere. And so Nebuchadnezzar left his sandy oasis to do battle with them. They actually met 50 miles south of Babylon in Sippar. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, they took a beat down. The, the Medo-Persian army threw down in a decisive victory. And depending on which history you take, Nebuchadnezzar either survived and fled, or he was chained and he's now exiled. But most historians, Christian or non-Christian, they agree that the Medo-Persian armies are now, as we read chapter 5, sieging the capital city of Babylon. They are encamped outside of the walls and have been for two months or other histories, three months. Some other history, historians say four months, doing all they can to cut off the city of Babylon. Now, that is your historical plate, and it's a big plate, I know, but you need that plate to hold the theological meat I'm going to give you later. Now, let's look at the biblical cup. Historical plate, now let's look at the biblical cup. One of the men in our church pointed out to me the similarities between the books of Daniel and Esther. What happened in Daniel will happen in Esther 100 years later. Both Daniel and Esther were captured by an eastern pagan king. Both Daniel and Esther were taken for being beautiful or of good appearance. Both Daniel and Esther were put into the custody of the king's eunuchs. Both Daniel and Esther were given a period of beautification or education. Both Daniel and Esther surpassed all peers in pleasing the king. And there's another unique similarity between the books. Both books have an entire chapter detailing a massive party. In Esther, the party is found in chapter 1. In Daniel, the party is found in chapter 5. The party in Esther lasts for 187 days. This one... Only for one day. As we walk through the chapter, I want you to note the similarities between the books of Esther and Daniel. So now we have arrived at the time to dissect this particular text, Daniel chapter 5. 
Now that I've given you the historical plate, slide it over and I'll begin cutting some theological meat off. Now that you have a biblical cup, pass it around and I'll fill it with gospel drink. Notice verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Hard stop. We are immediately swept into a lavish banquet room where a feast is taking place. And none of them know, none of them, that this will be their last meal. Oriental kings were known for throwing enormous parties. They were not, however, known for becoming stone-cold plastered in front of their guests. But notice Belshazzar drank wine in front of the thousand. He says, it's my party. I can drink if I want to. He set the example of drunkenness, sensuality, and revelry, revelry on this fateful night. Now it's interesting that the banquet in Esther, you may remember, was meant to unite the leaders on the eve of a battle. Here in Daniel, it seems the meal is to unite the leaders on the eve of a coming battle. See, what Belshazzar is doing is he is rallying the troops. He knows an attack will eventually come. He can see. Just, just picture him. Picture him with his, with his Babylonian brew just sloshing around, addressing his, his governors and politicians and generals. And he's saying something like this. I know the medial Persians have attacked one of our brigades. But we aren't fearful. We are protected in this city by walls that are 350 feet high, 87 feet thick. This city is impregnable to any war machine of our day. We are safe. If these Medo rats and Persian roaches somehow cross the moat surrounding our palace and attempt to scale the 30-story high walls, they will fall into an open area where they'll face another wall. And if the fall itself doesn't kill them, we will pick them off from our fortified stations one by one with our archers. These city walls have never been breached. We're like MC Hammer, you can't touch this. And I imagine maybe he did a little dance back and forth. He continues his speech. These, these scumbags are outside trying to starve us out of the city. <laughs> It will never happen. The Euphrates River flows through this city, providing endless supplies of fish and fresh water. We have the ample of source of water for people, cattle, and crops. We cannot be starved into submission. Everyone screams, yes. He continues, we knew they were coming. We've stocked enough grains to feed the entire population for 20 years. Let's raise a toast to the maggots outside who every day are becoming weaker and the muscle inside who are every day becoming stronger. Next month, we fight. Until then, we feast. So they party. They party like it's 1999. They have an open bar, a DJ table, a dance floor. What do the kids say this, these days? This party is lit. They're at a party that's lit. Notice verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father... Let me stop here for a moment. That's predecessor in, in Hebrew. 
Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now, there's a lot of alarming information here, but for one thing, women didn't normally banquet with men. You may remember Vashti and the women in in Esther having a private banquet while the king got drunk with all of his nobles. So the presence of all of these women confirms in the minds of Old Testament historians that this was nothing less than a drunken orgy. And and if you think people in the U.S. invented group sex, then, then you haven't read your history. This has always been going on. We know from excavations that this banquet room was enormous. It was supported by pillars carved into the forms of elephants. Each pillar standing 20 feet tall, supporting the ceiling. The tables were fashioned in the form of horseshoes, with all the nobles and leaders of Babylon, along with their wives, seated. Trained peacocks, dressed in a gold and silver harness, drew miniature chariots around the banquet room filled with goblets of wine. Trained waiters served the masses while girls danced on raised platforms. It was that type of environment. Verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, let's stop there, he was a polygamist, it continues, and his concubines, this is his human toys, drank from them. You can almost see this king three sheets to the wind after taking a big gulp, pounds it down to the table and says, pour me another one. The crowd cheers. What a king. He's drinking everyone under the table as a demonstration of his bravado. What a pathetic display of manliness. You hear his pompous voice call out to some of his slaves. Get those, get those Jewish holy cups over here. And we'll drink a toast to those parasites as well. Cyrus will not stop me and neither will this little Jewish God. See, some 70 years earlier, King Nebuchadnezzar had brought these vessels as war trophies from God's temple in Jerusalem back to Babylon. And according to Ezra chapter 1 verse 11, there were 5,400 of these vessels in Babylon. Most of them were gold. Nebuchadnezzar had placed them in the treasury of his gods. Remember that from Daniel chapter 1. He's exhibiting that his Babylonian gods had defeated this smaller um, Israel god. And and even in these days, there there were rules of war. Rules of engagement with the plunder. They were only to be used in the worship of other gods. And not for state banquets. Apparently even King Nebuchadnezzar understood that and he kept them locked up. You don't cross this line. You don't do what Belshazzar did. This act is a spit in the face of a holy God. These are God's holy goblets. He challenged God. And and, and do you want to know something? God accepted the challenge. Belshazzar threw down his gauntlet. And so did God. The story continues, and as one scholar describes it, a night of bad calls. Notice verse 4. They, 
drink wine and praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. While mocking the living God, these Babylonians praise their lifeless gods. Belshazzar is not only toasting his gods of gold and silver, he's not only blaspheming the God of Israel, he's saying effectively, you're good for nothing other than to hold my liquor. It wasn't the wine that night that caused Belshazzar's blindness. It was his own heart. Who does he think he is? He's not even the real king. As you saw, he's Nebuchadnezzar's son. He's like a spoiled hedge fund boy, assuming the throne. And the, and the next verse is straight out of, back in the day, you know, most of the people in our church won't understand this because you're all so young. But there was a show called The Adam's Family with a little hand running around. This, this next verse is like straight out of Adam's Family. Notice verse 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. This party was so loud. And then suddenly, everything stopped on a dime. The DJ screeches the album to a halt. The drinking, the dancing, the kissing stopped. The king's loud mouth was slammed Shut. Deathly silence fell over the whole group. Someone took the air out of the room. Someone sucked all the fun out. Someone crashed the party. It was God. God was the party crasher. Maybe you've heard someone tell a story and then end the story with, he missed the writing on the wall. See, the source of that saying comes straight out of this verse. Uh, Palace walls in this day spoke with mute eloquence they were covered with paintings and artifacts of an entire lineage of rulers and their achievements they were beautiful they were art and the purest form what did God do to man's art divine graffiti God writes over man's accomplishments He writes with his finger on the wall. You say, I didn't know God had a finger. Though God has no body, his actions are frequently, metaphorically, referred to as acts of a hand. So when God writes with his finger, it it doesn't happen often. You better pay attention. In fact, I can only think of three other times. Exodus 8, in response to the plagues, the Egyptian magicians, they remarked, all of these plagues, it is a a result of the finger of God. Exodus 31, we find the commandments were written by God's finger on stone tablets. In Psalm 8, the heavens declared the work of His, often translated hands, but it's actually fingers. The same finger that authored the Ten Commandments authored this message to Belshazzar. Verse 6. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. I'm sure Belshazzar set the record for the shortest amount of time anyone has ever sobered up. The king says, I can't believe what I am seeing. And the chronicler moves the camera to show a little wet patch appearing under the king's seat. 
His drunk red face quickly turned as white as a sheet. The phrase, his limbs gave way, literally in the Hebrew, means the knots of his loins were loosened. His hip joints went slack. And many commentators, in fact most, agree that he lost control of his bowels. What burlesque humor in the text. The man who had God in his hand encountered the hand of God. The king here tries to gain composure and get a grip on things. But he's a bubbling, stumbling loser. Look at him, verse 7. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Here we go again. He brings in Larry, Curly, and Moe. I don't know why we call them wise men. His brain trust continually failed him as it did King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 7 continues, The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads the writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now I read that, I read that last phrase and asked the question, Why third ruler of the kingdom? Well, because his father was the first, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the second, Belshazzar. And, and even though de facto Nebuchadnezzar was already eliminated, whether he was in exile or he was running for his life, Belshazzar still had to acknowledge that he was king. So he says, I'll make you third in line. He, and he offers the largest incentive he can, the most valuable commodity, honor, clothed in purple, wealth, a chain of gold, status, third ruler in the kingdom. Honor, wealth, status. Anyone who can read this writing on the wall, I'll make you rich and famous. In, in verse 8, for the third time in the book, all the king's wise men fail to come through. These incompetent fools do not disappoint our expectations. Their human wisdom is no match for the wisdom of God. The human wisdom cannot comprehend the wisdom of God. Verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed. His lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. It's a common way to address the king. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Now we have to ask the question here, who is the queen? She's very difficult to identify with certainty. But we know that Belshazzar's wives and concubines were already at the feast, so it's definitely not one of them. Since the days of Josephus, she has been identified as the queen mother. It, it was likely Belshazzar's mother, the daughter of King Nebi, the wife of his dad, Nebonidas. The queen is outside, hears the hysteria, and she walks in. Now, in the ancient world, the queen mother had a great deal of authority. She demonstrates this authority by entering the hall uninvited and speaking directly to the king. You may remember in Esther 4 that Esther couldn't even do that as a wife. So this was authority reserved just for the queen mother. And I find it interesting that the queen mother wasn't at the sinful party to begin with. And judging from her testimony about Daniel, she's probably a believer herself in the God of Israel, like her father was. 
And she, she chides Belshazzar for his panic, unbefitting of a king, and for his ignorance of Daniel, who had played an important role in King Nebuchadnezzar's court. Notice verse 11. There was a man in your kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, again, that's predecessor in Hebrew, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. Now I want you to notice two phrases in verse 11. The spirit of the holy gods, and then the second phrase, wisdom of the gods. Stephen Davies says these two phrases can be translated the spirit of God, singular, and the wisdom of God, singular. And it requires an interpretive decision on the part of the translator, and most assume this lady's not a believer, that's why they translate it in the manner they do. Notice as the verse continues. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father... Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will, not he might, he will show the interpretation. She's saying... There's no one quite like this guy. He can do anything. He can interpret dreams. He can solve mysteries. He can explain puzzles. In the Hebrew, literally, he can answer naughty problems. Dissolve doubts. Get them. Get them. Throughout the passage, the author uses repetition to drive home points. There's no highlighting in the Bible. There's no underlining in the Bible. So when the author wants to emphasize something, he repeats it. And he's actually doing it here with the play on words. Remember when I told you earlier that the knots of the king's loins were unloosed? And then here, the knots in the riddle, Daniel can unloosen. So he's saying, Daniel, I, Daniel can unloose your one knot, but he can't tie your other knot together. It's kind, of, it's kind of funny. He can unloose your one knot, but he can't tie your other knot together. See, when we left chapter 4... Last week, Daniel was in charge of much of the kingdom. But now he's been demoted. Because he obviously does not hold that position anymore. Not the same responsibility. By my math, he's 80 to 87 years old now. Daniel is washed up. If you want him, you will have to call him up out of retirement. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote that the king didn't want to hear from the old prophet... And she, the queen mother, had to literally beg the king to send for Daniel. It's been 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar died. Daniel was probably fired by one of the four kings after Nebi. Now, what you're seeing on your screen at this moment is called a chiastic structure. It's, it shows the plot development of the story. It also reveals the pivotal moment, the turning point in the narrative. The apex of this chapter is when Daniel is remembered. This is where the emphasis should be placed. Notice verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah? Now this is interesting. Eugene Peterson in the message, which is not a Bible translation, it's a, it's a paraphrase, but Eugene Peterson in the message, he says it like this, and I quote, 
the king asked Daniel, Are you the Daniel who was one of the Jewish exiles my father brought here from Judah? I've heard about you, that you're full of the Holy Spirit, that you've got a brilliant mind, and that you're incredibly wise. I'm going to stop reading there. I don't think it was like that. A close reading reveals a a condescending attitude by Belshazzar toward Daniel. Perhaps the queen mother's rebuke explains the defensive note in King Belshazzar's voice. John Calvin saw it too. He, He said, the tone of the king's speech is like he's interrogating a prisoner. What he do? What he's doing is he's putting the old man in his place. I'm king and you are slave. Let's just get that straight right out of the gate. And you can hear the sarcasm and derision in his tone, can't you? So you're a Jewish exile. Defeated. Whole nation defeated by my predecessor. See, a close reading of the speech will also show that the king does not endorse the reports. I heard you were wise. I heard the Spirit of God is in you. I heard, but I don't believe. The whole speech is really just a dig at the old man. I'm going to appease my mother. right? Mothers can even control kings. And there's something undignified about this scene. I don't like it. It's not attractive to me. The noble older man standing before a young, arrogant, powerful drunk. Finally, he says, I'll give you what I promised the other stooges. Honor, wealth, and status. Daniel replies, give it to one of your many jesters around you. I don't need it. And I love that response because we should view Babylon's treasures this way. Can't you see this white-haired Daniel, 81 years old, standing in the midst of a thousand people? You can hear a pin drop. Everyone gasp when they hear Daniel turn down the king's reward. Daniel was refusing what the nobles and wise men could only dream of. But none of that stuff matters when you're an hour from your death. Before Daniel interprets the handwriting, he does a little preaching. He schools Belshazzar on some history. He gives him a a verbal backhand like only an old man can get away with. In verses 20 and 21, the words you and your are used 14 times in machine gun-like application of Belshazzar's foolishness. He says, God pushed King Nebi's face into the dirt And you knew this. You knew God took away his sanity and then gave it back to him. You, Belshazzar, you're just like him. And I love the phrase at the end of verse 23. God in whose hand is your breath. Israel's God holds your breath in his hands. Finally, Daniel interprets. He says, because you challenged this God, notice verse 24... From his presence the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. And this was the writing that was inscribed. Many, many, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. So he's interpreting each of these words. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
Now I'm going to go deep for a moment. I want you, I'm going to come back up, but I want you to go with me just for a moment. Why couldn't the wise men do what Daniel did? See, the text says, the text doesn't only say, oh, they couldn't interpret it. No, the text says they couldn't read it or interpret it. So I think there's a couple options here. Option one, Jewish tradition has it that they could not read the writing because instead of being written horizontally, the words were written vertically in columns. Uh, Rembrandt, the painter, knew this tradition from his Jewish friends. So in his famous painting, which is actually in, in London today, of this scene, you will see the words written vertically. Now that's one option. Option two, and, and I contest that they couldn't read it because ancient Aramaic, like ancient Hebrew, used only consonants. And the vowels were added by Masoretic scribes 600 years after Christ. More, more, in addition to all of that, the words were probably run together without spaces. This string of consonants could be divided into different words depending on where you put the spaces. And adding different vowels to the consonants added still other possibilities. To, to give an example of how difficult this riddle in English would, would be, we can string together eight consonants like this. You'll see it on your screen. Let, just imagine these eight consonants appeared on the wall behind me. P-N-D-N-C-H-L-F. In order to read this riddle, one would have to decide where to place the spaces to identify the words. And there are just so many possibilities. Let's just imagine after weighing the options, we put a space after the third letter. So now it reads P-N-D space and then the rest of the consonants. Now we have to supply the proper vowels. Again, there are a host of options. P-N-D could be read as pained or pond or pound or panda or many other English words. And that's only the first word. We, we have two or three more to go. And we would have to divide them again and supply the vowels again. So let's imagine it was P-N-D space N-C space H-L-F. See, Daniel's first step was to rightly separate the letters into the appropriate word division. He, he does this. And he makes four words. There are four words to the inscription that read. And then he, he gives the definition here. Numbered, numbered, weighted, divided. So Daniel takes these nouns and interprets them as verbal forms. Passive participles to be exact. And, and based upon folk etymology, these four words each turned upon a pun. Okay? Notice on your screen there. Mini represented... represented a, uh, money, mina, tekel, shekel, which was one sixtieth of a minor, so it was it was smaller, and then Perez, half shekel. In English, the string of continents, just to help you here, the string of continents, p n d n c h l f, might have been read like this: pound, ounce, half pound. And so in this day, they weighed things. And, and they would put whatever the standard of the weight was on one side of the scale and the other, whatever the commodity was, and it had to, it had to balance. And so this is what he's saying with Belshazzar. God's standard is here, 
and you are coming up light. You don't make it. You don't meet the standard. Numbered, numbered, too light, divided. You cross the line. Your gig is up. That's the message. Then notice verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So after Daniel interpreted the writing, the king kept his word, gave Daniel a gold chain, MC hammer pants, the whole nine yards. And he says, go, get out of my, get out of my face. Daniel goes back to the nursing home knowing that his promotion will be short-lived. It's like getting a promotion the day before the company goes bankrupt. Or getting a medal even though you lost the war. Belshazzar is saying, here, here I was all worried. I was all scared. I even, I even did some things you know, where I had to change my pants. I thought it was one of my big gods that was displeased with me and wrote against me. But it's just your small little Jewish god. Drink up, boys. DJ, get it rocking. Ladies, start dancing. The party is back up and it's rolling. Now, what do you notice here? No repentance. King Nebuchadnezzar repented. King Belshazzar parties. King Nebuchadnezzar cries. King Belshazzar laughs. He says, Israel's God touched King Nebi. He can never touch me. Friend, I want you to realize that no man is out of reach of God's arrows. Something we're about to find out. Belshazzar is feasting on the brink of a grave, celebrating on the edge of extinction. Sometimes judgment is delayed, but payday someday. It's coming. Verse 30. That very night... Maybe it was an hour later. Maybe it was four hours later. Maybe eight hours later. That very night, Belshazzar the king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Now, how did the Medo-Persians get into the city? Because it was an impenetrable wall. Herodotus informs us that the engineers of the Persian army had found a solution that night, they diverted the Euphrates River into a swampland. And, and that lowered the water level of the river. And now they could, it was about waist deep. Now they could wade under cover of darkness through the waterways and the walls. They went inside, killed the guards, threw open the gates. And the whole Medo-Persian army descended on that city in one fell swoop. One historian I read this week said there wasn't even a spear thrown that night in the fall of Babylon. When they saw the soldiers coming, they could read the writing on the wall. Now let's just take a step back. Consider Daniel chapter 1 through Daniel chapter 5. God has shown us the beginning of the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 1. And now 75 years later, he's showing us the final act. And what, what is the final act of the Babylonian Empire? It's actually a last meal. A last meal. Now, I'm finished with the thick part of the text. And, and one of my goals as one of your pastors here is, is to help you interpret the Bible. And I attempt to model that before you. I also want to model how you apply the Bible. And that's why I'm always having applications at the end of my sermon. 
That's, you know, the way I do it when I always have like two applications or let's be realistic, most Sundays like 15 applications. That's not the most homiletical way to do it. I actually wasn't trained that way. I was always taught you weave your application throughout the sermon. But I developed that model just, just for this church specifically. Okay. Let me just give you an example. I've seen applications from this text abused. And, and I want you to learn how to do application that's, that's genuine. It's, it's not abuse. It just naturally comes from the text. So to give you some examples, here are some things I've heard an abuse of application from this text. I have heard pastors say, the handwriting is on the wall for all of those churches that don't do Sunday school anymore. God's going to bring an end to them. <laughs> you, you laugh, but th- that's exactly what I've heard. Uh, I, I've, the handwriting is on the wall for all the churches not having Sunday night service anymore. The handwriting is on the wall for all those churches having drums on the platform. Now that's, that's an abuse of application. That's, that's not a proper application. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you two applications today that I think arise from the text. Application number one. Jesus ate from a historical plate. Jesus ate from a historical plate. Remember I gave you a historical plate at the beginning and a biblical cup. Jesus ate from a historical plate. Now let's move from Belshazzar's last, last meal to Jesus' last meal. You, you know what Jesus held in his hand at his last meal? He held a historical plate. Jesus sat down to celebrate a historical meal called the Passover. For the ancient Jews, and still for Jews today, Passover was an annual meal that commemorated a defining moment in the history of Israel. The Lord rescued His people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Exodus 12. Jesus grew up celebrating the Passover meal. Most of the disciples would have celebrated this freedom meal as well. And I don't have time to get into all of this, but there were certain things on the plate. Like unleavened bread, which was a flat bread, not a round bread. A flat bread, they would pass it from person to person until everyone had a piece. Uh, Bitter herbs. It it spoke of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. The secret sauce, what I call it, the secret sauce. It was stewed fruit like a paste color. And the consistency was that of bricks. And it reminded them of making bricks while they were slaves in Egypt. Then there was wine, and then there was roasted lamb. And there was actually a a rhythm to how it was to be eaten. When you read about Jesus doing this meal, hosting this meal in the gospel records, you find that everything was going according to plan and how this historical plate was supposed to go down. Until suddenly Jesus jumped ship. He goes off script. Jesus says something. He says one thing, one sentence. And he rewrites 1,000 years of history. He's breaking the tradition. He's doing the Passover differently than it's ever been done before. He's, He's changing the meaning. The wine, the bread, the herbs no longer are symbols of deliverance from slavery in Egypt. But they pictured something else. And so he lifts the bread from that historical plate and he says this no longer represents your affliction it now represents my affliction 
See, Jesus didn't clear the elements and start fresh. He used the historical elements already in existence. When Jesus gives, takes his last meal, it is the last meal in, in two ways. One, it, like his last meal, physically. But then also, it was the last Passover and the first Lord's table or the first Lord's supper. He was instituting something there. Application one, Jesus ate from a historical plate. Application two, Jesus drank from a gospel cup. Jesus drank from a biblical cup. Now let's continue talking about how Jesus was supposed to do the Passover meal on that night. At four points in the meal, the presider, the the host, which in this case would have been Jesus, would hold up a glass of wine. He would rise to his feet and explain the feast meaning. And there are four cups of wine representing the four promises of God found in Exodus 4. The, the oldest male would begin the meal with a prayer over the first cup. Once that cup was finished, he breaks the bread in front of the family. This is the bread of the affliction that we went through in Egypt. And then they would drink a second cup. And then the main course begins... The third cup came at a point when the meal was almost completely eaten. And and when you read, it's interesting, when you read of Jesus leading this Passover, it's interesting that the fourth cup is is missing. Jesus skipped the fourth cup. Sinclair Ferguson and Tim Keller, everyone, scholars, believe that Jesus never drank the fourth cup on the table. He's supposed to drink the fourth cup. He left the fourth cup on the table. I don't know if you've ever played the game of cups where you have a little ball and maybe four cups here and you move it around and someone tries to pick where the ball is. We're doing something similar here. You follow the cup, you discover the gospel. In Mark chapter 14, verse 25, Jesus held a cup. I think it was the fourth cup. He held a cup and he said, I will not drink again. In the Greek there, it's emphatic, triple negative. I will not, I will not, I will not. Drink again until we do it together in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I I don't drink this fourth cup yet. It's not that day yet. One day we will all raise our glasses and drink that cup together in eternity. But Jesus is taking a different cup. It's pretty interesting. In the same chapter in Mark, if you go down to verse 36, Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, Father, if it's your will... Would you remove this cup from me? Now what cup was he talking about? He was talking about the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath. That's why Jesus couldn't drink the fourth cup at the table. He first had to drink the cup of wrath. On the cross, Jesus Christ took the cup of wrath. And then he handed you the gospel cup. He said, I'll drink the goblet of wrath... You drink the goblet of grace. Now here's a little side note. If COVID-19 wasn't going on right now, this is when we would partake of the Lord's table. If we were all gathered corporately, we would take of the Lord's table right at this moment. But we aren't gathered, so we're not going to take it. Now I want to do that on purpose because I want you to miss it. I want you to long for it. We're not going to do the Lord's table live stream. A lot of churches are doing it. A lot of my good friends are doing that. We're not going to have you doing the Lord's table at home. 
You say, well, well why not? It, it seems the best evidence is that they did it corporately together as a church body not a family unit. The Passover, that was a family unit meal. The Lord's table was a church body unit. So this is why we're, we're not doing this at home. I, I, we want to miss this. We want to miss this, and we want to come back and do this together. Now, one last thing. I don't know if I've said one last thing before, but just know I'm always lying to you when I say one last thing. One last thing. When Jesus cast out demons in the New Testament... My family and I were reading in our devotions through the book of Mark, and I love it because it's so fast and he's casting out demons. When Jesus cast out demons in the New Testament, it was said that he did it how? Do you remember? By the finger of God. For those of you who aren't Christians, Jesus wrote your condemnation with his finger on a wall. For those of you who are Christians, Jesus drank your condemnation with his cup on a tree. Repent and come to this Christ. Because he throws parties that Babylon and Persia, they have yet to discover. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.